Inside the Post-Dispatch. Hey, Beth, how's it going? It's going great. How are you doing, Liz? I'm doing well, doing well, aside from some like seasonal allergies. But you know, if this is the harbinger of fall, I'm okay with it. Yeah, it's the time of year when you're kind of like, it's either an allergy or maybe a cold. I'm not sure what's going on. It's very frustrating. We're just taking it day by day over here. That's all you can do, really. We're joined this week by restaurant critic Ian Frobe, who is joining us again after talking with us back in April about the STL 100, his list of the best restaurants in St. Louis. And he's back today to talk more generally about reviewing restaurants. Ian, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. I'm glad to be back. You recently returned to giving restaurants the more formal recommendation uh, or a non-recommendation with your reviews. Can you talk a little bit about why you stopped doing that and why you decided to start again? Yeah, so the the stop question has a a very easy answer. Um, You know, when the pandemic first hit back in March of 2020, You know, I stopped going to restaurants uh, to sit in, of course, like most people, because they were all closed um, for dining in. And, you know, we weren't writing reviews. And then, you know, for the first year or so of the pandemic, we were kind of covering it as a news story on the restaurant feed. You know, I would occasionally recommend takeout or write about takeout experiences, but nothing like a review. Um, Then I guess about maybe June of last year, June or July, we started writing... um, full-length reviews, but we decided not to put any kind of star rating or anything like that on it uh, because they were, the reviews were written with the understanding that restaurants were just coming back. You know, a lot of them had just opened their dining rooms again or were just getting back to full staff. I mean, it was clear that the situation was still in flux. You know, we would, this was even before the Delta wave. And then, of course, Omicron when, you know, things got a bit hairy again for restaurants and for, for things in general. So, you know, it was a long time. And, and frankly, you know, it was fine writing these restaurant reviews without the, the ratings. Um, I guess a couple months ago, I started thinking about, you know, whether we should bring back ratings, you know, what that would look like today. Um, I talked to it with my editor and he was eager to bring back some kind of rating. Um, I think we both think that, you know, it does... A review speaks for itself regardless if it has a rating or not. Um, But it does kind of, I think, send a signal both to readers and to the restaurants themselves that, you know, we are evaluating the restaurant and we are, you know, putting a bit more firm of a stamp on our opinion. Um, And I think that's useful. I think that, you know, there are arguments to be made to just leave it and let readers read and make up their own minds about what you're saying um, and try to write as clearly as possible so that there's no doubt. But I do think it helps, you know, both to hold myself accountable and, you know, to hold restaurants in general accountable as, you know, whether they're recommended or not. We have a little bit more background noise than usual, and we apologize. We're uh, doing this over Zoom, and some of us are in the newsroom and some of us aren't, and so you might hear a bit more background noise. So apologies for that. Uh, Ian, did you want to continue with that, or are you pretty much? No, I mean, I think, you know, it's like I was saying, you know, we, we had to decide whether, you know, a rating was still useful, I guess, maybe the best point since we haven't had them for, you know, over two years. And I I do believe that at a certain point, they do, you know, help set a piece of writing apart as just, you know, whether a restaurant review can sometimes, especially if it's, if it's a positive review can sometimes, you know, also read as a profile, even, you know, if you go deep into the background of the the chef or the, the owner and so forth. Um, and a review can still do that now, but I think it just helps make clear that this is a piece of opinion 
and that, you know, we are, you know, sort of delineating between recommended, highly recommended, and then this new thing we are calling essential as the, the topmost ranking. But also, you know, and, and it's a project in development, and we can talk about this too, that, you know, we didn't bring back stars. We're doing it a little bit differently. So that, that was sort of the big decision we made is to come back, but not to do sort of traditional restaurant star, you know, one star, two star, up to four star ratings. And this, we're kind of already talking about this a little bit, but uh, how did you land on that current language, that scale from kind of not recommended to essential yeah. um, as opposed to a star system? Yeah, so I think it might be helpful to go back to the idea of stars. You know, stars have always been connected to restaurant reviews. You know, I, I think the New York Times was the first to do it in, in the U.S. Um, I'm not 100% confident of that. But um, and certainly, of course, the Michelin stars worldwide are, are well-known also. And I think whether intentionally or not, four stars, three stars, whatever the top of your scale is, sort of carries with it uh, a connotation of luxury, of expense. Um, that you know, a four-star restaurant is going to be, you know, if not coat and tie these days, at least you're going to dress up, you're going to spend a lot of money. Um, and I think over the last 15, 20, even longer years um, in American restaurants, you know, in American food culture, we've realized that great food is not necessarily that white tablecloth, suit and coat, fancy dress. It can be, you know, a great restaurant can be an everyday restaurant. It can be, you know, a mom and pop restaurant to use sort of the, an old fashioned term. You know, it's the sort of the, the, the lowercase d democratization of dining that's happened over the last 20, 25 years. And so I just felt that that connection of four stars to expensive was just unavoidable, um, really. The other thing with stars, and, and I, this will come off as a criticism of Yelp, but I, I 100% do not mean it as a criticism of Yelp, but that Yelp has sort of, I think, claimed the idea of stars in a popular way that, you know, you're either a five-star restaurant or you're not. That makes sense. You know, there, there, there isn't that nuance. You know, people want to give every restaurant they love five stars and they want to, when they have a bad experience, give the restaurant no stars or one star. I don't think you can give zero stars on Yelp. So I think between that sort of traditional four stars is expensive and then sort of, you know, what Yelp has become and, and its role um, and, and things like that. Um, I think Google reviews lets you give stars too, if, I, if I'm correct, if I remember correctly. Um, it was important just to do something different. And so what we wanted to do say, and the language we use and sort of the little box that accompanies every review is, you know, how does this restaurant rate on its own terms? You know, if it's meant to be an affordable everyday restaurant, is it still making the best product possible? Um, and if it's, you know, an affordable everyday restaurant and it's, you know, the best of its kind, then it's essential. If it's, you know, if, if it's that important to the fabric of St. Louis food culture, then regardless whether it's that white tablecloth experience or, you know, a place you can roll up to for lunch and spend, you know, under 20 bucks a person, it can be essential. Um, and that, that to me was the really important part of bringing these ratings back is to, you know, that accountability I talked about both for me as a critic and for for the restaurants, but also opening up the idea of what is an essential restaurant, what is a highly recommended restaurant. And then obviously any restaurant could be not recommended, but um, hopefully that will be rare. Well, speaking of non-recommended yes. restaurants, <laughs> one of your most recent reviews led off with like the very first sentence was that one of the sandwiches at this restaurant was the worst sandwich you've ever eaten, which I don't think people would need to read <laughs> the recommendation recommendation guideline to see that it was not recommended. But also it in terms of writing, I'm wondering if it's harder to write a bad review or is it 
harder to write a review praising food? You know, the actual answer is writing a, a again, I hope rare, I mean, review like the Santa Fe Visa review you just mentioned. If, if you've been there enough times and you and your mind are clear enough why it is that unfortunate an experience, it is not difficult to write. A rave review generally is not difficult to write. It's that middle thing where it's, it's some good, some bad, where you try to figure out why it's not working quite the way it should. That's the difficult review to write, you know, sort of, you know, in the old, the old sort of star system, you know, the restaurant that clearly wants to be a four-star restaurant, but is only maybe a two or three, you know, figuring out why it doesn't reach its own aims. That's the trick you want to write. With, with writing a really negative review, the, the difficult part is coming to terms with, do I need to write about this place? If that makes sense. You know, I, there are restaurants where I have had over the years, not recently, where I've had, you know, consistently two, three negative experiences where it's clear this restaurant is not ready for prime time, whether it's the idea is bad or the cooking just isn't up to par, whatever. Um, and I've asked myself, you know, do I need to write about this? And I, the answer can be no, because if it's a place that I think nobody will have heard about, you know, and again, I can't, I just have to guess this. I can't know this for sure. But if it's a place I think people will only hear about because I have written a very negative review, um, I'm more inclined not to bother. The late Joe Bonwich, who was the Post-Dispatch restaurant critic and wrote for several, several other publications around town about restaurants, you know, he, he called it benign neglect. You know, you, you just sort of let the restaurant be and, you know, maybe it pulls it together. Maybe it's a success regardless, but you don't need to write about it and call attention to its shortcomings. Um, and I, I try to follow that. But again, I have to make a decision sometimes and I decide yes. And I guess with this case, I thought given the fact that the owner has another successful restaurant at Clayton, um, that it is an expensive restaurant or relatively expensive restaurant. Um, and it's in a very you know busy area, Creve Corps, you know, bustling along all of there, um, lots of people. It seems like the kind of place a lot of people would, would, would stumble upon. Um, I, I felt comfortable you know, writing this review and, and publishing it. Um, but again, it's a judgment call. And I mean, I'm sure there are people, you know, who read that review and said, why are you bothering? Why would you be this mean about this place that maybe they hadn't heard about um, or wouldn't have stumbled upon? So you know, you're never going to please every, every reader or every, and certainly not every restaurant owner. For sure. Of course not. Was the reaction to that review um, because of the pandemic and because, you know, you hadn't been giving restaurants that that rating scale, people might have forgotten that you do write bad reviews about places, even locally owned places. Was the reaction to that review different than to a positive review? Yeah, I mean, I certainly, you know, there were there were more comments uh, online and, you know, more chatter sort of, at least in the social media circles that I sort of pay attention to, um, or, you know, the, the channels that come across my 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 day-to-day activities online. Yeah, I mean, people, you know, some people were, I think, were surprised that it was that negative or, you know, that I wrote about it in a way that was, you know, obviously entertaining or hopefully entertaining to the reader. But yeah, so I think, you know, it's been a while since certainly I've written something like that. It's, and, and, I don't know, there, there was never going to be a time when, you know, the restaurant gods came down and said, okay, you know, critics, you can write negative reviews again. You know, each of us had to make that decision ourselves about when to, to 
go ahead and do it. Um, I felt it was it was an okay time. Two and a half years later, you know, most restaurants are are open to full capacity. Can't speak to their staffing, but you know, most restaurants when I go are pretty busy, uh, especially on on you know typically busy nights. It, it felt. I don't know if we'll ever be back to quote unquote normal, but it, it felt close enough that I was comfortable. Um, but yeah, the reactions, you know, some people didn't like that I wrote it. I, I think we published a letter to the editor from somebody who was very, very critical of how I went about it. And that's fine. You know, I, you dish out the criticism, you can take it. Um, yeah. And some people in the comments, you know, were disagreed with my opinion, which is again, you know, that's the nature of, of the beast. Um, yeah. So I think it, it prompted a reaction. Um, it's been so long since I wrote one of these. I can't remember what the last one might've been or what the reaction then was, but yeah, it, it certainly, it, it made an impression maybe more so than a, the positive reviews do. Well, and as you mentioned, Ian, so much has changed in the past two and a half years, uh, but it does feel like there. this is a time when we can start to get back to kind of some of the ways that we used to operate in the industry. Uh, and as you said, every newspaper and every critic is going to make that call for themselves. But I'm what I'm winding up to ask is, I'm just curious, you know, why, in your opinion, is this kind of honest and unvarnished restaurant criticism necessary in journalism, especially for listeners or for restaurant owners, perhaps, who aren't as familiar with it and its place in newspaper history? Yeah, so I think, you know, it's a good question because, you know, obviously so much has changed about the restaurant industry just in the last two and a half years and and how we talk about restaurants has changed so much in the last 15, 20, 25 years, especially with the explosion of food television and now, you know, YouTube series and, and TikTok influencers and, and the visual component to everything. Um, I think restaurant criticism is important because it actually takes a step back. It's not just a moment. It's not just a photo on Instagram. It's not just an attractive pizza cheese pull on TikTok. It, it's somebody who is taking the time to, you know, think about, reflect, and try to put into context what a restaurant is trying to do, um, what it means to the St. Louis area, what, what the chef's you know, background is. But I also think it's important that there is a critical component because so much of the food media is a sort of relationship between the producer of the content, to use that horrible word content, the producer of whatever it is, the article, the series, and the restaurant in that they're working together to show off the restaurant, the chef, whatever. It's positive. And that's fine. But I think too much positivity can blur the questions. What is this restaurant really trying to do? You know, not just is it good, but why is it important? And so I think it really is key for a healthy restaurant scene. And I think St. Louis, pandemic aside, has a very healthy, fascinating, growing restaurant scene to, to be able to take a step back now and say, hey, this is good, but it's not good enough. This is bad, and we need to talk about why it's bad. This is really important and great, and you should know about it because, not just because it looks good or because you know there's a good story behind it. And not everybody will like that. Somebody, some restaurants, some restaurant fans just want the positive press, and I understand that. I just feel it's important that 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 there be a few people in the restaurant scene who are able to speak up and be honest, be fair. You know, I. For Santa Fe Bistro, you know, I went five times before I wrote that article because I wanted to be sure that that my conclusion was, was it's not going to make the restaurant happy, but it was based on, you know, multiple experiences. But yeah, I think it is important to still have a critical voice, a critical voice, not my critical voice necessarily, but at least one or two really good critical voices in a restaurant, in a city's restaurant scene for it to remain healthy. 
Um, and it's challenging because, as I'm sure we've talked, we've talked about on this podcast before, you know, the newspaper industry is changing uh, to be polite. Um, and so, yeah, it's challenging to find, to make space for that, for, for, to make the time to read it and to think about it. So I appreciate when people do talk about what I write about, or at least read it and, and you know, maybe try a restaurant if it's a good review. Because, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a dwindling space for written criticism. So I, I, I appreciate the ability to, the, the opportunity to still be able to do it. We definitely appreciate reading it, even when it's not the best or when it's uh, a not recommended rating, there's something about, and there's a kind of infamous New York times review of a restaurant on times square that like is the quintessential. I'm going to tear this place apart because it's not good. Um, well, you know, I think, I think I know the one you're referring to is probably the review of Guy Fieri's. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, that's a great, you know, obviously that review became, you know, when, incredibly viral pete wells the new york times longtime new york times restaurant critic you know because he he wrote it brilliantly as a series of questions and you know obviously guy fieri for a lot of people especially back then was a, was a big punching bag sort of the late anthony bourdain always made fun of him and, and, and that kind of thing but you know that was a great review i thought not just because it was cleverly written but because when you got to the heart of it he actually the question at the heart of it was you you on your show, you know, show so much respect and love for the kind of food that these dives, as you know, the show calls them, produces. But then you do such a bad job of making that food here. Like, you know, that was such a great disconnect. So, you know, all the, you know, the hilarity and then having to put, I think, Guy Fieri went on like the Today Show the next day to sort of defend himself. And that whole brouhaha was, was funny and amazing. But it really, you know, that kind of review gets to an essential question. That's the kind of thing great restaurant criticism can do is to be like, hey, Guy Fieri is not a joke. His show is actually really serious. I mean, it's a fun show, but its intent is to showcase these places. Why is your restaurant doing such a bad job of highlighting that kind of food? Yeah, so that's what you want to do. You want to, you know, if you don't want people to go to the restaurant, you have to have a serious point, but you also have to make it fun to read. (laughs) And I thought that's kind of the classic example of a review that I think both had a serious point and was a delight to read. Yeah. I mean, I will also say maybe this is a toxic trait, I am like morbidly curious now about the worst sandwich you've ever eaten. So I don't know necessarily that it won't bring people in the door. I think for good or for uh, ill, you know, you are giving, as you said earlier, an opinion. And that sometimes might prompt others to want to have their form their own opinion about a dish. Yeah, no, it, it's true. I mean, you know, obviously, <laughs> you know, the cliche is there's no such thing as bad publicity. Uh, I'm not sure if that's true. But, but I do think it's, it's good to sort of, you know, challenge, you know, to, to issue a challenge, to say something every now and then that's, that's very strongly and backed up by experience. But yeah, I mean, it really was. I tried to, you know, I dwelt on it for, I think, three paragraphs because, you know, I wanted to make clear this is why I didn't like the sandwich so much, why it didn't work. And if it challenges people to go out and try it, hey, that's great. If people come to the opposite conclusion, that's great. We need, I think every restaurant scene needs more discussion and more, you know, not headbutting, but a little bit more, uh, you know, back and forth. And, and, you know, maybe, hey, this isn't so bad. Or, hey, maybe this restaurant you love, Ian, and you, you know, put on your top 100 every year is actually not good anymore. You know, that's healthy, I think. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't think it's a toxic trait at all, Liz. <laughs> well, thank you. I'll take it. <laughs> to move, because, to move on from, from a bad review, because you <laughs> do so much more. Um, tell us about your new email newsletter, The First Course, which people can sign up for and read for free. 
Yeah, so we started this, I think this week will be the 20th week we've done it, something like that. So it's been, you know, not quite half a year. You know, it, it's obviously email newsletters are kind of a booming thing right now in, in publishing. So we wanted to, to get on board. And, you know, it, it's a great place to find sort of the main stories of the week in one place, leading off with my review for that week. And then, you know, easy links to that and then to other big stories. So you don't have to, you know, click around and, and visit STL today slash entertainment slash dining every day to get your dining news, although I'm happy if you do, um, but you can get it all in one place and, and, and click through from there to what interests you. Um, and then we also wanted to do a little value added thing. So each week, most weeks, every now and then things fall through, but um, we try to do a, a special recommended dish that's exclusive to the newsletter, you know, something either new that I haven't gotten around to writing a full review about, um, a place, you know, that's established that I haven't been in a while. It's, it's pretty much open game for anything, really. Um, and, and so it's just a fun thing to, you know, hopefully draw a little more attention to restaurants and give you one more thing to try in the week. And yeah, and it's uh, the newsletter is an experiment. I'm always open to ideas for what else we can do or, or things you'd like to hear or questions you'd like answered. So yeah, I really hope readers will, will sign up and, and give it a try. And uh, yeah, I'd love some feedback too of what make it even better newsletter or more, more informative. Um, but yeah, it's been a lot of fun so far getting uh, write a little bit extra about restaurants without having to write full another full review every week. Yeah, that's great. And Ian, uh, you recently visited Centene Stadium to preview the local food options at the stadium where St. Louis City SC will play soccer. Wow, I really said that like someone who is an expert on sports in general, <laughs> soccer specifically. Um, but what can you tell us about it, what you experienced at that preview event, and then what listeners can expect from the food at the stadium? Yeah, so that was a really fascinating event. I wasn't sure what to expect. But so St. Louis City SC, which I'll just call City going forward because it's a mouthful. They they really wanted to make the food experience at the stadium, you know, sort of based on local dining, local restaurants. Last year, they brought out um, Gerard Kraft, of course, you know, probably the most acclaimed uh, chef and restaurateur in town. They, they brought him on board to sort of to use a, a trendy word, curate uh, the restaurant selection. But he and uh, Carolyn Kindle, the CEO of the team, and really, I, as far as I can tell, did the work, got some kind of like 10,000 you know, suggestions through their portal, or however they took in the, the votes, ate their way around town, and have come up with 25 restaurant partners. And they unveiled the first five uh, at this event Monday at the stadium. So it's, you know, two of uh, crafts, um, Pasteria and uh, Pasteria Deli and Wine, excuse me, pizza from there and uh, the burger from Brasserie. Um, those will actually be sort of exclusive to one of the, the club areas in the stadium. But in, in terms of the general concessions, they introduced a Balkan Treat Box, of course, the great restaurant in Webster Groves, one of the best barbecue restaurants in town, East Craft Barbecue, and the great fun hot dog spot, Steve's Hot Dogs, uh, Steve Ewing, of course, of The Urge, local rock star and uh, hot dog uh, purveyor. And uh, so those were the three restaurants first introduced uh, as Kraft told me that the whole list is pretty much done. There's still, you know, some T's to cross and I's to dot, that kind of thing before they announce the rest of the list. But yeah, I mean, you know, they 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 really have rolled out the red carpet for these these folks. You know, they, they had tasting stations there for the media and influencers and everybody there. And they really, you know, obviously the proof will be in the execution when they open next season. But, um, you know, they really seem to show an understanding of what makes local food great, what they want to show. You know, it wasn't just pork steak they, they sought out you know the guy who makes the best smoked pork steak in st louis period david sandusky of east you know they sought out balkan tree box which lauren and edo knowledge have trans you know taken bosnian and, and broader balkan food and, and turned it into this amazing uh, you know affordable everyday restaurant that you know, has gotten national attention they're there 
it's it's not just a hot dog it's you know a locally owned hot dog and it's a hot dog joint that does its own thing they smoke the the hot dogs before they grill them so it's a real attention paid to not just local restaurants but but make specific local restaurants good so it as a critic it certainly made me think that they are serious about this that this could be a really fantastic game day sorry match day sorry soccer fans match day experience for uh for city fans next year. Sorry, sorry, soccer. City supporters next season. Uh, I actually enjoy soccer, but I, you know, the lingo sometimes I, I can't catch up. Um, but I did get to go down on the pitch at the event. So that was enjoyable. Couldn't actually go on the grass itself, but we were able to, to get down there for some one-on-one interviews. So it's, 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 it's an amazing facility. I mean, if you've driven by, you know, it's very distinctive already. It's really sleek inside. Um, I think it's going to be an amazing place and fingers crossed with amazing food. But yeah, I have a preview up with some interviews. Um, if you subscribe to my newsletter, there will be a link tomorrow. It comes out every Thursday, uh, but you can find the article now on uh, stltoday.com too. And one of the things that you mentioned kind of briefly in that article was that eating during a soccer match is different than eating during a baseball game. Like I go to a baseball game, I wait for about two innings, and then I go and I grab my ballpark nachos and a beer. But how is soccer different for people who have never been to a soccer, a professional soccer game? Professional soccer, especially if you're a complete novice, there there are no TV timeouts. There are no built-in timeouts. You know, there there might be injury delays, but the clock keeps running. So, you know, you have two 45-minute halves um, and with a halftime in between. So, yeah, there's, you know, the anticipation from the restaurateurs at this event is that, you know, you have that big rush before the match begins and then you will have another big rush at halftime and then that's it as opposed to like you said baseball you know you get up you get down there's 162 games nine innings and 27 outs and you're gonna miss something you don't go get you know this past season you didn't go get nachos when you knew Albert Pujols was coming up to bat but if it was the bottom of the fifth and it was seven to nothing Cardinals were up Pujols was on the bench you might just say go for an inning or two to get beer and food Soccer, generally, you're not going to do that because you don't want to miss the sudden surge that leads to a goal. So yeah, so it's going to be interesting, I think, for the restaurant, restaurants themselves as they staff up and plan the logistics and how much food they get ready, how they prepare it. You know, for them, it's going to be a challenge because as as far as I know, none of them have done anything like this before. Um, you know, and some of them have to, you know, like Balkan Treat Box as an example, is having to craft a new dish that will be, you know, handheld. Um, in a way that some of their food isn't really. And you know, a lot of their food is wood-fired, wood-fired oven. They're not going to have that at the stadium. So, you know, these restaurants are, are not just transplanting their work there. They're having to figure out how to cook it, how to serve it in a way that's stadium-friendly. But as, as Gerard Kraft said at the event, you know, one of the key things is, is it beer-friendly? And I think <laughs> I think that might be the easiest thing for all these restaurants to, to meet. Apologies to the listeners who came for a restaurant food conversation and found themselves in the middle of a soccer conversation. But <laughs> it had an impact. It has an impact on what people can offer and, and what they, you know, how uh, people will approach the food at the stadium. So thank you, Ian, for explaining that a little bit. A little bit. We'll return back to the restaurant conversation now. <laughs> yeah, well, Beth, I was just going to add, I think, Ian, you mentioned earlier, even before the pandemic, how much the restaurant industry has changed in the past decade, two decades. And it's really exciting. I think this is a good example of an attention to local and seeking out, you know, a revered, um, you know, award-winning chef and restaurant owner to help to use your word. I'm going to throw you under the bus for with Curate uh, to curate that lineup feels like something that might not have happened 20 or maybe even 10 years ago. 
And for folks like me, I think I've already proven I don't know anything about soccer. That's true of all sports. Um, <laughs> it just makes it more exciting for me to go to a game. Like I certainly would because I want to be a passive supporter of the team in St. Louis. But I'm a lot more engaged and excited about it when I know that I can get local food options at the stadium and delicious local food options. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, they they really want this experience to to not just be a great stadium experience, a great match day experience, but to be a St. Louis experience that when supporters of other clubs come when their team is playing here, that they don't just come away saying, oh, you know, win or lose, that was great, a great day, but that, oh, you know, this is, this felt like St. Louis, this, when media comes from national media comes for events, you know, that they'll, they'll feel like this is St. Louis. I think that's key because I think we have such an amazing food scene. And unfortunately, the national media, even the best intention, you know, it tends to focus on, you know, the gimmies, you know, Provel pizza, toasted ravioli. And those have their place in any discussion about St. Louis food, but it's so much more. And when you have potentially 25 at least local restaurants on display, that's going to send such a message. And yeah, it's, it, it is exciting. And obviously, you know, not to, to pick on the other teams in town, because like you said, things have changed. But you, you compare that to what the Cardinals experience, you know, just now at Ballpark Village, you see, you know, Salt and Smoke is now open and Katie's Pizza will open next year. And, you know, when Ballpark Village opened, there was uh, Drunken Fish was already an established local brand. But I, I remember correctly, everything else was kind of new and, and not really locally based. I apologize if I'm forgetting somebody. But, uh, but yeah, so it's exciting to see from the ground up that, that local connection. And yeah, 15, 20 years ago, I don't know if anybody would have even thought about doing something like this, even somebody well-intentioned to, to opening a stadium with this kind of thing. So yeah, like you said, it's, it's a real change and it's, it's super exciting. And yeah, it's going to bring in casual. I'm not sure if there'll be tickets available for somebody who just wants to happen to see a soccer game, whether they like soccer or not. But, um, but yeah, it will, I think, also appeal to more casual stadium goers rather than just the hardcore supporters. All right. Well, I think that is a great place to end it for today. Uh, Ian, thank you so much for joining us again. We would love to have you back on very soon. And I hope you have a great rest of your week. Thanks. Always a pleasure to speak with the two of you. And uh, thanks for having me back once again. Thank you for joining us. Have a great week, everybody.